0: Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and it has been a crazy, crazy week. 2020 uh, cannot get into our rearview mirror fast enough as far as I'm concerned, so let's look forward to a new beginning next year. And uh, I've got lots of fun stuff coming up next year, by the way. I've got a really cool, hopefully, if fingers crossed, if all goes well, I'll have a really fun uh, guest for our New Year's Eve show, which will also happen to be the 200th episode of the podcast. That is really hard to believe that we're coming up on 200, but actually, regardless of who I get as the guest, it's going to be a fun show. I'm going to have some fun stuff there, so be ready for that. And I got a new show for you today. Um, we got a few topics to cover. Uh, first of all, just there's not much to say here other than update your iOS devices, update your iPhones and your iPads to 14.2 iOS 14.2. There were several big fixes in that, security fixes, so you're going to want to update that as soon as possible. Enough said for that. Uh, But we're going to talk about some Windows 10 problems as well, and I've been telling you to update your Windows 10, and actually this goes back to Windows 7 too, for that matter. Uh, Update your Windows for sure, update Chrome for sure, and you'll find out why now when I tell you what's going on with that. Uh, We'll talk about Adobe Flash and how that is finally going to bite the dust and again be in our rearview mirror that has been a long time coming and can't come fast enough uh i've talked in the show several times about how the ring doorbell which is owned by amazon has been striking rather creepy deals with a lot of local police departments like a lot like hundreds and we've talked with the eff about that and and several stories but uh, there's a new development in there that's that we, that the EFF and me and others have basically been saying, you know, it's a slippery slope and it's, and we're, it's getting worse. So we're going to talk about that. There was an interesting article I ran across about how, you know, the, the, the FBI and a lot of the intelligence agencies in the U S and abroad have been clamoring for backdoors and encryption because they're saying they can't protect us. Uh, and yet we've got evidence that, because someone actually did that that we ourselves got burned. So, I uh, will I will definitely be sharing that one with you. And then we're going to talk about another election result and that was a proposition in California, Prop 24, that basically put some more teeth behind the recently passed California Consumer Privacy Act or CCPA. And it's not perfect, but uh it's interesting, and so we're going to talk a little a bit, little bit about what's in that. And then finally we'll get to the tip of the week. And that is that Zoom, uh the video conferencing service that has become a household word that we all love and hate, has finally, for real this time, implemented true end-to-end encryption. So at the tip of the week, I will tell you how to use that. So, lots to talk about. Let's get to it. All right, so Windows 10 PCs have been under attack recently. There's, it's actually been a, a scary combination of two bugs. Well, one of them's a nasty Windows bug, but that Windows bug would uh, would require someone to basically have access to your computer or at least be on your, your home network or something like that, which makes it, you know, a little less dangerous, but still bad. But in combination with a Chrome browser bug that allowed bad guys to hack that remotely, like as in from anywhere on the planet, the combination of those two were really bad. So uh, let me read this article from Tom's Guide uh, about this Uh, Windows zero day attack. A previously unknown Windows zero day flaw is being exploited by hackers, but Microsoft won't likely be fixing it until the middle of next month. The vulnerability affects Windows 7 through Windows 10. So say the researchers at Google's Project Zero, who also revealed that the Windows exploit is just the second step in a one-two punch being used by remote hackers to take over PCs. The first step is a Chrome flaw that was disclosed and patched last week. The Windows exploit requires local access, i.e. a person or software who already has access to the machine, so by itself it's not much of an immediate threat, but the Chrome flaw it was combined with is remotely exploitable, which makes things much worse. A malicious email attachment or website could use the Chrome flaw to escape the browser's sandbox and then use the Windows flaw to take over the machine. Until Microsoft releases a patch, the best way to protect yourself against this Windows flaw is, ironically, to update Chrome, Edge, Brave, Opera, Vivaldi, and other Chromium-based browsers to the latest version. But now that the secret is out, it's possible that malware operators could incorporate this Windows exploit into their own bag of tricks. If they can get the malware on your machine by other means, they don't need the Chrome exploit. Okay, so, first of all, all those browsers I just mentioned, Chrome, Edge, Brave, Opera, Vivaldi they are all based on the same engine as as google likes to call it the google chromium engine that's like basically the the guts of the chrome browser uh, which is an open source project which is picked has been picked up by several other companies who don't want to make you know reinvent the wheel the problem of course with that is when there's a bug in one of them there's now a bug in all of them and the uh, the two holdouts there that you may have noticed would be apple's safari which they wrote themselves and the firefox browser so that's why it's important you know, that we have multiple choices for browsers, because if we end up in a monoculture, uh, when there's one bug, it, it affects everybody and you have no choice. So another reason to just go to Firefox. Not that they never have bugs, but because they're less popular, honestly, they're not likely to be as targeted as Chrome and Chromium-based web browsers. All right, next up. Adobe Flash, something I have been railing against for many, many years, Uh, and actually finally, just in the fourth edition of the book, finally just took it out. It wasn't, most people aren't using it anymore, thank goodness. For the first three editions, it was definitely one of the tips I had to remove it. Actually, eh, maybe it is still in there. But what I used to have in the book for sure that I took out was, if you had to use Flash, I had recommended that you use the Chrome browser, because Google's Chrome browser had Flash built in, and the reason that they built it directly into the browser was so that Google could make sure that it was kept up to date. Because Adobe Flash had bug after bug after bug after bug, and when people were not updating it, it was just sitting there for the bad guys to exploit. So what I used to recommend was that you use Firefox as your daily, everyday browser, and then when you happen to come across an old, stodgy website that has not moved on to modern times and required you to use Flash, that then you break out Chrome Uh, And that way you'd be guaranteed that you'd always have the latest version of Flash. And that was really, at the time, the only reason to use Chrome. And that reason has been gone for some time. And that's why in the fourth edition of the book, I just say, use Firefox. But anyway, that's the background story to what is hopefully finally the bitter end for Flash. Let me read this uh, article from Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog. Adobe's technology for fancy interactive graphics, mostly used to spice up your browser, has drifted toward its demise for so many years that it's almost single handedly made a cliche out of Mark Twain's famous remark that, quote, the report of my death was an exaggeration, unquote. Back in the day, Flash was a popular tool for writing online games and publishing browser based software that worked more like a native app than was possible with the HTML features at the time. However, given that Flash ran right inside your browser and required a complex, powerful plugin to implement, what were essentially fancy turbocharged proprietary browser extensions, Flash brought with it a regular supply of exploitable bugs, over and above any bugs in your browser and your operating system. Cybercriminals could abuse these bugs not only to plague you with fake or misleading content, but also to escape from the strictures of your browser, spy on other web browser tabs, read files off your hard disk that they weren't even supposed to know about, and implant malware on your computer. Worse still, Flashbugs seems to show up very frequently as zero days, the jargon term for exploitable security holes that were found by attackers before a patch is available, thus leaving even the most disciplined and swift-acting system administrators with zero days during which they could have been ahead of the crooks. Cybercriminals didn't just love Flash, they adored it. Of course, most of us, even back in 2016, either already didn't have Flash at all or needed it so sparingly that we could get away with uninstalling it completely after each use, downloading and reinstalling it as a one-off every time we were genuinely forced to rely on it, which is, that was my solution for that was the Chrome browser. Probably more because of pressure from users than from any burning desire to keep Flash alive, Adobe soldiered on with Flash updates and security patches for desktop computers for a few years more. But in July 2017, the company finally and formally admitted that it had had enough, and that the technology was entering a phase known by the rather doom-laden jargon term EOL, short for End of Life. And this is a quote from Adobe at the time. It said, Specifically, we will stop updating and distributing the Flash player at the end of 2020, and encourage content creators to migrate any existing Flash content to new open formats. Which, basically, HTML, which is the language of the web that all your web pages are made of, has evolved enough that it basically had provided the same features that Flash did, but in a much more secure way. So, where do we stand on the final demise of Flash? Will it really abdicate forever on the last day of 2020, given that it's had so many encores already, despite being redundant in browsers since HTML5 came out in 2014? Is someone finally going to take us on a one-way trip to a world without Flash, a trip from which there really is no turning back this time? Yes. It seems that the programmers at Microsoft, bless their hearts, have already set out to do exactly that. Update KB, and this is, I hate when they do this because no one could possibly remember these numbers. Update KB 4577586, entitled Update for the Removal of Adobe Flash Player, October 27th, 2020, quote unquote, will remove Adobe Flash Player from your Windows device. But there's more. It goes on to say, quote, after this update has been applied, this update cannot be uninstalled, unquote. The only way to get Flash back is by rolling back to an earlier restore point or reinstalling Windows from scratch. Wow, it really is the end of the end for Flash, at least on Windows. I don't know that Apple's going to release a software update that will explicitly remove Flash, but this is something you could do on your own if necessary. If you still, for some reason, have it installed, go to your browser, go to the add-ons or extensions. Uh, Each one has a different name for it in Firefox. I'm pretty sure it's add-ons. Look at your list of add-ons. And by the way, while you're there, if there's any other add-ons you're not using disable them or remove them but if you if if you see adobe flash player in there absolutely remove it immediately all right moving on we've talked with the eff about this several times as well we should because this is this is creepy and this is something that a lot of people take for granted i think and don't really think through when they're buying a video doorbell i mean i've got a video doorbell in fact i used to have an amazon ring video doorbell actually i bought it before amazon bought it and you know once amazon bought it and started having these relationships with the police and uploading your video to the cloud uh, where I might not be able to control it, I switched to a Eufy video doorbell, that's E-U-F-Y, that allows me to keep all the video locally uh, on the device on a little SD card and not have to store that in the cloud and not give police access to it. So this was one of the reasons I did that. So here's an article from the EFF uh, about a new pilot program using these Amazon Ring video cameras uh, for the police. This is not a drill. Red Alert. The Police Surveillance Center in Jackson, Mississippi, will be conducting a 45-day pilot program to live stream the security cameras, including Amazon Ring cameras, of participating residents. Since Ring first made a splash in the private security camera market, we've been warning of its potential to undermine the civil liberties of its users and their communities. We've been especially concerned with Ring's 1,000-plus partnerships with local police departments, which facilitate bulk footage requests directly from users without oversight or having to acquire a warrant. While people buy ring cameras and put them on their front door to keep their packages safe, police use them to build comprehensive CCTV camera networks blanketing whole neighborhoods. This serves two police purposes. First, it allows police departments to avoid the cost of buying surveillance equipment and to put that burden onto consumers by convincing them that they need cameras to keep their property safe. Second, it evades the natural reaction of fear and distrust that many people would have if they had learned that the police were putting up dozens of cameras on their block, one for every house now our worst fears have been confirmed. Police in Jackson, Mississippi have started a pilot program that would allow Ring customers to patch the camera streams from their front doors directly to the police real-time crime center. The footage from your front door includes you coming and going from your house, your neighbors taking out the trash, and the dog walkers and delivery people who do their jobs in your street. In Jackson, this footage can now be live-streamed directly onto a dozen monitors scrutinized by police around the clock. Even if you refuse to allow your footage to be used this way, your neighbor... Your neighbor's camera pointed at your house may still be transmitting directly to the police. Only a few months ago, Jackson stood up for its residence, becoming the first city in the southern United States to ban police use of face recognition technology. Clearly, this is a city that understands invasive surveillance technology when it sees it and knows when police have overstepped their ability to invade privacy. If police want to build a surveillance camera network, they should only do so in ways that are transparent and accountable and ensure active resident participation in the process. In the many cities that have enacted the Community Control Over Police Surveillance Ordinance, residents through their legislators have more to say in whether or not police may build a program like this. The choices you and your neighbors make as consumers should not be hijacked by police to roll out surveillance technologies. The decision-making process must be left to communities. And then they belatedly added on this response from Amazon. And Amazon replied to this post, and they included it here, and it says... Quote, Amazon and Ring are not involved in any way with any of the companies or the city in connection with the pilot program. The companies, the police, and the city that were discussed in the article do not have access to Ring's systems or the neighbors app. Ring customers have control and ownership of their devices and videos and have and can choose to allow access as they wish, unquote. You know, so okay, that's the end of the article, and as as PR goes, that's that's the perfect way to put that. Um, But the reality is that Ring has been fostering exactly this sort of thing for a long time now. And it should be no surprise to Amazon that that's where this is going. And while it may be true that Amazon is not directly involved with this situation in Jackson, it may just be because they didn't think of it. Or perhaps they didn't get to it before Jackson, Mississippi did. This is completely in line and consistent with the kinds of things that Amazon is trying to do with local police. The relationships they're trying to build... Uh, like I guess it's basically a, a neighborhood or community surveillance network that you, the consumer gladly pay for. So again, privacy, it's not just about you, it's bigger than you. Uh, and so just because you don't particularly feel any need to restrict the police from looking out your front doors, video camera, what if everybody in your neighborhood did that? Or worse yet, what if you don't have one, but everybody else does. And therefore without your consent, without your knowledge, you're basically on police candid camera all the time. So I agree with EFF here, which is probably not surprising. Uh, And that is transparency is key in all these things. And if it's going to be used for law enforcement in any way, shape or form, it really needs to follow a completely different process. Uh, And we need to be talking about warrants and things like that. You know, mass surveillance is never a good idea. All right. Next up, Um, you know, we've talked many times in the show about how law enforcement agencies in the United States and elsewhere have been decrying the exploding use of encrypted communications because they are saying everything is going dark. Uh, That is not really true. Uh, Just because the communications themselves may be encrypted, the metadata almost always is not. And in many cases, the metadata is actually more damning and more revelatory than the content of the conversations themselves. Um, but the only way to do what they're asking us to do is to break encryption. Uh, and they keep insisting that it's possible to do this without letting the bad guys in. But as I've said many times, you you can't make a door that only good guys can enter. And this article will give an example of just exactly how that might happen. All right. This is from Reason.com. And they've actually took a lot of this from Reuters.com. But the Reuters article was much longer. So uh, I went with this kind of shorter version from Reason.com. Attorney General William Barr and the FBI Director Christopher Wray frequently and insistently demand that social media platforms and messaging apps implement encryption backdoors that allow law enforcement to bypass user security in order to access communications. Cybersecurity experts and tech companies warn that such backdoors will inevitably compromise everybody's data and lead to hacking and intrusion by foreign governments. Turns out that the federal government already knows this because it already has happened to the federal government. Reuters reports today that the National Security Agency, the NSA, which historically has worked to have encryption backdoors secretly placed in computers by tech companies to ease foreign surveillance, saw a security system subsequently compromised, possibly by the Chinese government. The company involved is California-based Juniper Networks, which agreed to install an encryption system component that the NSA could exploit and bypass. According to Reuters, in 2015, Juniper Networks discovered malicious code in some of its firewall products. Researchers later discovered that whoever introduced the code had turned the firewalls into their own spying tool. While Reuters doesn't officially know who the customer was or who the hackers were, researchers told them that the client was likely a U.S. government agency. The reason for the lack of clarity is due to NSA secrecy, according to Reuters. After the NSA got burned for its own backdoor, the agency told staffers for Senator Ron Wyden, the Democrat of Oregon, it had put together a quote-unquote lessons learned report, about what happened with new guidance on implementing backdoors. But now the NSA says it can't find the report. That the NSA had secretly been negotiating backdoors into some encryption systems was one of the details revealed by Edward Snowden in his whistleblowing. Wyden, a leading Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee and advocate for preserving strong encryption and data privacy, has been trying to find out what sort of guidelines the NSA has developed. But he's been stonewalled. Wyden grasps the potential threat of secret backdoors and warns Reuters, quote, Secret encryption backdoors are a threat to national security and the safety of our families. It's only a matter of time before foreign hackers or criminals exploit them in ways that undermine American national security. Unquote. At the same time, the Justice Department is still relentlessly trying to make our encryption worse, and so have other governments like the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, India, and Japan. Earlier this month, national law enforcement leaders from all of these countries signed a letter demanding that encryption be weakened, claiming that police need access to fight child sexual exploitation. Privacy and technology experts have been warning all along that these demands would actually make everybody more vulnerable to crime for very little gain and would compromise everybody's privacy and data security. From today's Reuters report, we now know that not only does the federal government understand the fatal flaws of encryption backdoors, but the government itself was likely a victim of hacking as a result of a backdoor. That makes it all the more shameful that people like Barr and other governments continue to demand them. All right, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. Um, I think that pretty well summed it up. But you've just got to, you know, obviously whenever these things come up, they they appeal to the absolute worst case you know, scenario, the, the one that's most likely to engender empathy. You know, and, you know, what could be a better poster? Well, I was going to say poster child. it's <laughs> probably not appropriate. What would be the better topic than child sexual exploitation? I mean, it's absolutely abhorrent. And, you know, when you, your emotions get riled up, you, you tend to think, okay, well, I'll give up some privacy and security if, if gosh darn it, we can protect the kids. But in actuality, we can, we can go after these guys many other ways. It doesn't require encryption backdoors and i mean we we require encryption every single day everything we do all the banking transactions not just the ones that we make between us and our bank but between banks all the intellectual property that that goes over the internet between you know different sites of uh, major us companies all the data that's encrypted on hard drives in uh, different places that get hacked if they weren't encrypted that data would be exploited encryption is used everywhere and it's absolutely essential for today's network networked society. And there's just no way, no way to put some sort of a magic back door, side door, front door, I don't care what you call it, into an encryption system that can only be exploited by the good guys. And I will take that one step further and say that it's not really possible to define good guys. I mean, look at all the Snowden revelations. I mean, basically, he caught our government doing unconstitutional mass surveillance. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but I thought that was an interesting article. All right, one more news item, and then we'll get to the tip of the week. So uh, California just passed, uh, and this article that I'm reading is was from a few days ago. So at the time, it was likely to pass, and so it mentions that several times that, you know, if it passes, well, it, in, in, the, in the interim, it has passed. So keep that in mind as I read this article. There was a Proposition 24 that basically adds more teeth and extends and refines the California Consumer Privacy Act, which was passed a couple of years ago and was supposed to have gone into effect kind of at the beginning of this year, but it was kind of vague in some areas and they kind of promised that they would refine these things as they went along. And of course, lobbyists got involved and it got a little more watered down, a little more you know, ambiguous. So this was an attempt uh, in California with a public proposition that the that the populace got to vote on as opposed to trying to get it through California's legislature, that basically tried to fix some of the problems with CCPA. So let me read a little bit about this, what this is and what it means, and then I'll talk on the on the backside. This is from Business Insider. It says, although votes are still being counted, voters in California likely passed Proposition 24 yesterday, and like I said, it has been passed, which is an extension of the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA called the California Privacy Rights Act, or CPRA. The act would enshrine a tougher set of data privacy rules for businesses, give consumers more rights regarding how their data can be used, and establish a separate agency for rulemaking and enforcement called the California Privacy Protection Agency, CPPA. The CPRA would, one... Create a broad category of sensitive personal data, a designation that includes such things as a person's racial or ethnic origin, their genetic data, their sexual orientation, and information about their health, among other information, which consumers can limit to approved uses. Two, give consumers the right to correct information businesses have on them. Three, strengthen opt-in requirements for data on children with stronger penalties for forbidden use or sharing, and 4. Provide an opt-out for cross-context behavioral advertising, defined in CPRA as targeted advertising based on a user's personal information that was collected across a variety of digital touchpoints such as websites, apps, and services. So why does this matter for marketers? California is by far the largest state economy in the U.S., and the law would de facto become a national legal standard for most large advertisers. Laws to protect privacy will limit marketers' ability to personalize digital advertising. These laws also make data security more important, meaning that companies that use data will need to have more emphasis on data protection, introducing a new need for data protection officers, for example. A June 2019 Pew Research Center privacy survey found that 85% of Internet users in the U.S. had some concerns about how much information advertisers had about them, and nearly half of those, 39%, had a lot of concern. A yes vote on Proposition 24 would set a standard for Congress and other state legislatures facing similar popular calls for privacy legislation. What can we expect in 2021? If Prop 24 passes, and again, it's already passed, It will create an unofficial deadline for federal data privacy law. And this is a quote from uh, Caitlin Fennessy, who's a research director at the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the IAPP, uh, which is the organization that gave me my CIPM, or Certification Information Privacy Manager, uh, certificate. Anyway, she says, quote, I think that CPRA's most impactful provision is when it takes effect, January 2023. If adopted, CPRA would create the impetus and provide the time frame for adoption of federal privacy legislation. And I think that was intentional on the part of the ballots initiative proponents. Unquote. There's a general consensus, including in the advertising community, that some form of federal privacy law is necessary. But it won't be easy, especially if Congress remains split. The two parties are far apart on two issues: preemption of state laws and the private right to action. Although it's possible that the two parties could agree on a weak privacy bill that doesn't include federal preemption, it's more likely that the parties will remain deadlocked. The odds for a privacy bill in 2021 rise with a Democrat-run Congress and a Biden presidency, but even with the Democratic caucus, a variety of viewpoints hold. It will be difficult to get a majority in Congress to pass a tough privacy law immediately. Okay, so again, that brings up something I've brought up many times before, and that is because our federal government here in the United States, unlike the European Union with GDPR, has not gotten its act together and can't seem to agree on basic privacy regulation. This country, for whatever reason, is very corporate-friendly and not very consumer-friendly. Certainly not when it comes to consumers' privacy rights. Uh, And so, you know, it takes sometimes uh, a big state like California, like they did with, uh, you know, auto emissions laws and other things that eventually became de facto standards across the United States to implement some of these privacy laws. And hopefully we will all benefit from this because Facebook and Google and Amazon and all these other big advertising companies, whatever you think they really are, will hold them accountable and, and, and finally, hopefully give us the tools we need to opt out and guard our data. Because right now with, you know, nobody reads privacy policies, nobody reads the terms of service before they click accept on something. And they know that. And these companies use this along with a lot of dark patterns, which I'll talk about here in a minute, to trick us or coerce us or otherwise bend us to their will and allow them to collect all this data on us. And so this is an attempt by California and by extension, probably a lot of the United States to rein that back in and give some rules to the road. Cause right now it's just a total wild, wild West. Actually the phrase is wild West, but I happen to like the old TV show wild, wild West. So <laughs> that's what came to mind when I said that. Okay, moving on, let's get to the tip of the week. So, as I said, at the beginning of the show, uh, when COVID hit uh, video conferencing became the norm, both from working and learning from home, uh, even talking to relatives because with social distancing and the pandemic, we were all encouraged to stay home more and to get together in person less. Uh, There were plenty of great video conferencing solutions already available, but for whatever reason, Zoom became the de facto standard. It was not the largest. It was not the best, Um, but uh, it's dirt simple to use, and it was very easy and kind of fun to say, and (laughs) and it just kind of shot to the top of the list. So uh, at the time, they claimed that they had end-to-end encryption. Uh, They didn't, because true end-to-end encryption means that the only parties able to view the video, hear the audio would be the two people involved or the many people involved if it's, a, if it's a multi-way call. And technically what it means being end to end is you're using a computer or an iPhone or a tablet or something as your way of running the Zoom client. Uh, and so are they. And your endpoint, that device, is where the video and audio is encrypted and decrypted so that as it's traveling the internet, going through your internet service provider and various other internet backbone companies, and crucially, in this case, Zoom, before it goes on to the other end to reach the your called party, end-to-end encryption would mean that it, it, it is encrypted through that entire path. And what Zoom used to have, and actually they still have, so I'm going to tell you how to make sure you know what you're doing, was point-to-point encryption. So it was, we always talk about Alice and Bob, right? When when we do encryption and crypto stories that we always bring in Alice and Bob. So Alice and Bob want to have a Zoom call and they want that call to be completely private. So the video, as it leaves, let's say Alice has an iPhone and Bob has a has a PC, a Windows PC, and they've got their webcam set up and they want to do a Zoom call. It may be, and it used to be, that they that data streaming between Alice and Bob on their two devices was encrypted, but it was encrypted from Alice to Zoom, and then from Zoom to Bob, but not at Zoom, meaning that Zoom could see everything that was going on inside that conference call. So you can kind of think of it like there's a, a tunnel, a pipe between Alice and Zoom, and another pipe or tunnel between Zoom and Bob and that tunnel is opaque nobody from the outside that tunnel can see what's going through that tunnel but it does end at zoom and then restarts at zoom before it gets to its final destination and while it's in transit through zoom's servers zoom has full unencrypted access to that data stream and they still have that now basically Um, so there are two new encryption methods for zoom calls One is called Enhanced Encryption, and one is called End-to-End Encryption. So the Enhanced Encryption is End-to-End Encrypted. It's encrypted all the way from Alice to Bob through Zoom, but Zoom chooses the encryption key and maintains the, the encryption key. So basically, that means Zoom still has full access to it. It's encrypted as it goes through Zoom, but Zoom has the ability to decrypt it because they have the key. Now, that's much more convenient. You don't have to worry about... Uh, dealing with the keys, but it's not that much harder to do true end-to-end encryption. Uh, And when you set that up, then you generate and and you keep the key, and through some really nifty cryptological math, your keys are able to be exchanged with Bob remotely without Zoom getting them. I'm not going to get into how that works. It's called public key encryption. You can read about it in my book uh, or on the web, but trust me, it's possible, it's doable, and it's mathematically sound. And when you do this, Zoom cannot do it. Now, of course, you're still basically trusting Zoom not to somehow surreptitiously make a copy of that key because you're still using the Zoom application, right? So, you know, I'd say it's still technically possible for Zoom to lie to you and still get a copy of that key. So in some ways, we're trusting that they don't do that. But at least it's a step in the right direction. So I wrote an article about this. You can find it on firewallsdonestopdragons.com with pictures and everything, and it'll show you how to enable this feature uh, and then to set it up for each individual call. But anyway, so it's it's really a two-part process. And I'm going to read to you from this Lifehacker article, which I also reference in there that you can look at. Um, that runs through the steps real quick, but it's probably better to see it uh, with pictures. But anyway, I'll do it just for the sake of the tip of the week, uh, so you can get an idea of what uh, what needs to be done. So first of all, you'll have to create a Zoom account if you haven't uh, if you don't have one already. Uh, I think you could use Zoom before without both people on each end having an account, but part of the Part of the compromise here is that we don't want it to be used by the bad guys and not have any accountability, so they do force you to create an account. And with that account, when you log into that account on the web browser, and you can't do it through the app, at least not yet, you'll have to enable end-to-end encryption on your settings first. And then once you've done that, you'll need to make sure you download the latest version of the uh, the Zoom client on your iOS device, on your smartphone, on your Mac, on your PC, make sure you've got the latest software. Uh, if you do have the latest software, you still might need to restart it to make sure that it's communicating and getting the latest version of your settings. And then whenever you start a meeting, either when you use an ad hoc meeting with your personal room or if you schedule a meeting, there's an option there in the settings and advanced settings for that meeting to turn on end to end encryption. Anyway, let me just read this article and, and, and uh, I'll talk about it a little bit more at the end from Lifehacker. A technical preview of Zoom's end-to-end encryption will roll out to free and premium users in the next Windows, Mac, and Android app updates with iOS and iPad soon to follow. Enabling Zoom's end-to-end encryption makes video calls much more secure, but there's a catch. Zoom's end-to-end encryption disables several other features, including private chats, breakout rooms, and more. We'll go over all the compromises that Zoom's E2EE end end encryption, in other words, setting entails, but first let's talk about how Zoom encrypts your video sessions and why you should consider turning it on, no matter the cost. According to Zoom's blog post, announcing the new encryption options, Zoom end end encryption uses the same 256-bit AES-GCM encryption that secures Zoom meetings by default, but Zoom manages the encryption and sharing the keys with participants. Users with end to end encryption enabled generate their own encryption keys locally and then share it with others in the call. Zoom never knows the key and cannot decrypt the meeting's data. If that's confusing, the bottom line is that end to end encryption makes it impossible for anybody outside the call to access the meeting or view its data, including Zoom itself. That boost in privacy is a welcome change, especially after Zoom's privacy policies came under scrutiny as COVID 19 drove up the app's popularity. As mentioned, turning on Zoom's end-to-end encryption disables several key Zoom features, including breakout rooms, group polling, join before host, cloud recording, streaming, I'm not sure what that refers to, live transcription, one-on-one private chat, meeting emoji reactions. The good news is end-to-end encryption can be enabled and disabled per meeting so you don't lose access to these features permanently. This gives you the freedom to set the level of privacy and functionality you want for each call you host. Also, keep in mind the feature is in Phase 1 technical testing, so some of these restrictions could be lifted by the time Phase 2 rolls out in 2021. However, in order to use end-end encryption during Phase 1, all participants must have the setting turned on before joining an encrypted meeting. How to turn on end-end encryption in Zoom? You need to turn on Zoom's end-end encryption in your user settings before you can use it during a meeting. So 1. Go to Zoom's web portal. 2. Go to Settings, then Meeting, then Security. Then 3. Enable, quote, allow use of end-to-end encryption is enabled, unquote. Then click turn on when prompted to verify the change. Next, select your default security level. And like I said, there's two options here. First one, end-to-end encryption is best if you want to keep using all of Zoom's features. And it says parenthetically, you can still use end-to-end encryption for individual calls. So I guess there must, there's a default security level. So that this is the default you're setting, not the individual one. And then the second one, of course, is end-to-end encryption, which will use end-to-end encryption for all meetings, but restricted features will always be disabled for calls that you host. And I'm not sure why that's true either. And then you click save. Anyway, and then when you go to create an actual meeting um, for each individual meeting, you can tweak this once it's enabled globally, you can select for each meeting whether whether you want to use it or not. So i had actually ended recording right there, uh, but I came back because I wanted to add one more thing to this. So as I was looking through my emails, and for, I almost never look at my spam folder. But for whatever reason, I just happened to look at my spam folder. And I found this. And I want to read this to you because, and I've talked about this before, but uh, it's worth repeating. So let me read this email that I got that was rightfully in my spam folder. It says, hello, this will grab your attention. You have used Zoom recently, like most of us during these bad COVID times. And I have very unfortunate news for you. I'll give you some background on what happened. There was a zero-day security vulnerability on Zoom app that allowed me a full-time access to your camera and some other metadata on your account. I found a few interesting targets through random lookups. You were just lucky to be on the list. After that, I did some creepy stuff at a few recordings just for fun and to test a few things. And as you can imagine in your worst dreams, this happened. I have made a recording where you work on yourself And actually, actually in one version of this, it says, in parentheses, a sex act, to be exact. Going on, it says, please don't blame me, and there's no apostrophe on don't, please don't blame me or yourself for this. I didn't have any bad intentions. I got very sick, lost my job, about to be evicted, and have no money to survive. That's a new one. Actually, the other one didn't say this. All of this because of the stupid virus. I'm sorry. I have no other choice. I do not want you to be the next Jeffrey Tubin. And if you don't know what happened there, it actually did happen to him. Not this way, but in a different way. I'm sure you don't want to be embarrassed, and I don't want to make this video public so your friends and colleagues can see it. Let's make a deal. You pay me $2,000 in Bitcoin and none of, nothing of this will happen. What happens next is up to you. I'll give you three days to make the payment. After you send the money, I will delete the video and forget about you forever. The amount is not negotiable, Send .18 Bitcoin, or about $2,000 at current exchange rate, to my wallet, and it gives a Bitcoin wallet ID. And it says, P.S., don't try to report this to police. I use Tor, and a Bitcoin can't be traced. Do not email me back. If you do something stupid, I will distribute the video. Good luck. Don't stress. (laughs) Thanks. So, I've... I've received no fewer than four of these in the last week. I have not used Zoom at all in the last week. But it doesn't matter. This is not real. This is a total and complete scam. For one thing, if this guy actually knew anything about me, if I was truly hacked, it would be really good to prove that. Like, maybe by calling me by my name. Or saying absolutely anything whatsoever that might sound like it it knew what I was doing. Now be careful, because there are a couple versions of this scam where they give you an old password, and it quite possibly is a true password that you used to use. But they're just getting that from some database breach that probably happened years ago. And, you know, and it may very well be one of your passwords that was in there. And hopefully you were warned about that breach and you changed the password a long time ago. But that gets really creepy when you see, like, one of your real old passwords quoted in the email. But trust me, again, it's just it's just a parlor trick. And obviously, this was a little different. One of these, <laughs> this was one actually appealing to your empathy because this poor, poor person is out of money. And gee darn it, they had no choice but to hack into your computer, catch you doing something supposedly... Embarrassing. Record that something, and then hold you for ransom. Obviously, there's a lot of English errors in here. Some of these you couldn't see because they were uh, visual. Some of them you could. You would have to read, which I called out the lack of apostrophe and don't. Though other places it did have one. There were there were spelling errors. There were. All sorts of other kind of errors in here and you only heard some of that. But anyway, just I wanted to throw this in here because after just talking about Zoom, this is I'm sure this is happening to other people as well. And if your spam filter is not as good as mine, you may actually have gotten that email and read it and be and been scared. So ignore it, it's not real, put it in your spam folder and forget about it. All right, that is it. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We've got a really great interview two-parter starting next week. I have been saying for many, many months, actually I think it's been probably a couple of years now, that I have really wanted to get somebody on, an expert, to talk about dark patterns. And dark patterns are these psychological tricks that marketers use to get us to do things that they want us to do that benefit them, that don't benefit us, but they try to make us believe that it benefits us. Or just wear us down and not really give us any other kind of option. There's all sorts of different dark patterns. That's why it's got an S there. That's why it's plural. Uh, And we are going to talk with a user experience expert uh, from my alma mater, Purdue University, named Dr. Colin Gray. It's really fascinating. It's really interesting, and it will probably anger you as you listen to these things and go, oh yeah, I have seen that, and then realize that this was all done on purpose, in many cases, specifically to trick you into doing something that you didn't really want to do. So anyway, it's a a long interview, but it's really fascinating. It's broken up into two parts and it starts next week. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that one. I've got so many other interviews. I've got five other interviews currently cooking right now. (laughs) So lots of them coming, including a big one, hopefully, for the 200th episode right before New Year's Eve. One of them is, one of these five is not, unfortunately, the Jeff Fowler interview from the Washington Post. Um, he is just too busy right now, uh, and he's a busy guy. If you go and look at his Washington Post columns on privacy, you'll see why. He's publishing these all the time and doing great work. So I'm dying to get him on the show, but it's going to have to wait a little bit longer. And I've got some other ones coming from totally new organizations and companies that I've never talked to before and some big ones. So really looking forward to that. Again, subscribe right now and you won't miss any of them. Also coming up uh, is my annual best and worst gift list. And this, of course, is taking from a privacy and security perspective. I publish the, a blog entry and a newsletter on this every year. That will actually probably come out next week. But I will go through that list and talk about it in a little more detail in the news show that will follow this Dark Patterns dual episode interview that starts next week. In the meantime, if you're curious, you can go to my website, uh, FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com, and you can look for previous ones. If you just search on best worst, you'll find them. And one last thing, I've got to do it again. If you have read the book and if you enjoyed it, please, please, please go to Amazon and leave a nice review there. I've be Amazon did not let me carry forward my reviews from the third edition to the fourth edition, uh, which is a real kick in the pants. So um, reviews are everything on Amazon. And I, I had, you know, 57, 58 uh, reviews. I think all of one of which were five star and like there was a one four star review. But they're all gone now. They're all associated with the third edition, which most people never see. So I'm imploring you, if you have read and enjoyed the book, please, even if it was a previous edition, uh, go to the fourth new fourth edition and leave a nice review. I would very much appreciate it. So that's it. Again, the holidays are coming up, so everybody, please make plans to have a safe gathering, or you know, maybe not even do one if absolutely necessary, but you know, keep the guest list small. Make sure everybody's wearing their masks and doing as much social distancing as possible. If it's warm enough where you are to have it outdoors, please do that. And unfortunately, I know we all look forward to this time of year with Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and all these wonderful social events and time to see people we probably haven't seen possibly since last year. But right now, with uh, COVID-19 exploding all around this country and with flu season coming up and the colder weather where everybody's indoors more often, we've got a lot of things stacked against us here and we've got to help ourselves out wherever we can. Man, how do we get on that topic every week? I'm sorry, I guess I'd... Don't mean to preach every time, but, you know, when I'm talking about everybody's security, you know, nothing's more personal and secure than your health. So stay healthy, stay safe, everybody. Stay home when you can. Wear those masks when you go out. And uh, as always, until next week, don't get caught with your dropper down.